today because of Justin being gone and not having the second special. I have got like all kinds of extra time to preach, but I will, I will not take advantage of that, I promise. So, uh, but uh, we are in John chapter 20 today, so if you want to slide in your Bible over to John chapter 20, and let me just make mention, we will finish, we have been in the, our study in the book of John for a while now, we will finish our study in the book of John next Sunday, and then the following Sunday, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, uh, we're getting ready to have an election. And uh, I am not going to get in the pulpit and tell you who to vote for. But the following Sunday, I am going to tell you how to vote biblically. Because it doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat, Independent folks, as Christians, we need to vote biblically. We ought to vote according to the guidelines and the morals that our Lord dictates to us in the Scripture. And so... <laughs> Next Sunday, we finish John. The following Sunday, we're going to talk about some very specific issues in this day and age and how we as believers can vote biblically about those issues. And from there, you'll figure out who you need to vote for. So uh, John chapter 20 and verse 11. John chapter 20 and verse 11. I've titled today's uh, message, Whom Do You Seek? Whom do you seek? Let's look at what it says in verse 11. It says, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping, and as she wept, she, shook, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white, sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. So we find Mary here, the first one to come to the tomb, finding the stone rolled away. And Mary now peers into the tomb and she's weeping. Now, the word weeping there in the original language is wailing. She is in agony about the death of her Savior. And so she is not just crying, she is wailing and uh, in agony over this thing that has taken place. But when she peers into the tomb, she sees two angels, one near where the head of Jesus Christ was and one near where the foot of Jesus Christ was. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was such a momentous event in history that two angels were present to help declare it. See, folks, the resurrection of Christ is what sets our beliefs and our belief system apart from every other religion in the world because we serve a resurrected Savior. We don't serve somebody that was here on this earth at some time, passed away, and is now in a grave somewhere. We serve a Savior that has resurrected from the grave. And those angels were there, and their presence was there to declare this to Mary so that she understood what had taken place. And so, and so as she peers into the tomb, she sees these two angels there. And, it's, and, and in verse 13 it says, And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. So Mary was still at this point of the conversation under the belief that somebody had taken the body of Christ. And, and, and remember that you know, part of the reason that there was a guard at the tomb was so that nobody that believed in Christ, that trusted in Christ, could come and take the body and claim that he had been resurrected. That's why there was a guard there put at the tomb when Jesus Christ was laid therein. 
because they didn't want anybody to say that something happened and he miraculously is gone from the tomb. But we know Jesus did r resurrect from the, from the grave and did come back to life in, on this earth. And we're going to look at that over the next two Sundays. But she's concerned about where the body of Christ is. What has happened to Jesus? And um, then verse 14, it says, And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now that's an interesting verse. Because Mary has come to the tomb. She certainly knew what Jesus looked like because she, she loved him. And, and, and she comes to the tomb weeping and, and wailing in agony about the death of her Savior. And she turns around and Jesus is standing there. And the scripture says she doesn't recognize him. So you've got to begin to think to yourself, why did Mary not recognize Jesus? Well, I studied a lot of people this week and their opinions about why Mary didn't recognize Jesus. So I'm going to throw a few out there. Several commentators believe that she did not recognize Jesus due to her immense grief and the fact that her eyes were probably filled with tears as she was crying and wailing, and so she just didn't recognize the face of the Savior. Could be. Some say that he may have looked quite different due to what he endured on the cross. If you remember, I believe it's in, I can't remember if it's Isaiah or Psalms, where it talks about his visage was changed. The look of his face because of the, the brutality of what took place with the crown of thorns and the beating and the smoting of him and the pulling out of his beard, that he was not recognizable as who he was. Could be that as well. Others believe that he may have looked very different uh, due to some aspect of his glory now coming through in his person. And I'm here to tell you today, folks, we don't know. Okay, I don't know why Mary did not recognize Christ. Those are all good explanations, and it could be that it was a combination of all those. But for whatever reason, Mary, who comes to the tomb, doesn't recognize it's the Savior. And then it says, Jesus speaks unto her, and it says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And then he asks the question, Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Now, in that verse, in that statement, we see Mary's extreme devotion to the Savior. Because she is determined to find out where the body is so that she can go and take it away. Now, folks, let's think about this for a moment. I, I, I picture Jesus Christ probably as a pretty solid guy, physically, right? I mean, I, I don't picture him as some little meek little man that weighed, you know, 80 pounds. I picture Jesus as a pretty, pretty strapping man. Now, I may be wrong, but I don't care what he weighed. Mary was not going to be able to go pick up that body and carry it away somewhere by herself. But in her devotion to the Savior, she was determined to figure out where he was so that she could take care of the body. That's devotion, folks. That's how devoted she was to the Savior. I want us to also note something very important to this. And this is the fact that Jesus appeared to Mary first. 
Now, folks, that is very significant. And I'll tell you why it's significant. In Bible times, the testimony of a woman was not accepted as a qualified testimony. It was not. They did not believe the testimony of a woman to be necessarily accurate. Sorry, ladies. We don't live in that time anymore, okay? But at that time, the testimony of a woman was not considered an accurate testimony, just like the testimony of one person was not considered an accurate testimony. There need to be the testimony, the witness of many, to be accepted as testimony at that time. And so one of the theories that always gets pushed around is that Jesus really didn't resurrect from the dead, but his body was taken, it was stolen. Now, if somebody was going to, to and, and, then, and then we say that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Now, if I was going to start a story that wasn't true about Jesus being resurrected from the dead, the last thing I would do back in Bible times would be to say the first witness was Mary. I would have the first witness be like somebody in the Sanhedrin or somebody in, you know, that would be the first witness I would call. I would not call Mary as the first witness. Why? Because her testimony would be suspect. So this was just another way, and listen folks, God makes no mistakes. God made sure that the first person that saw Jesus Christ after his resurrection was Mary. To disprove the idea that somebody just made this story up out of the figment of their imagination because they would have never used a woman at that time as the first witness. But yet we know Mary will not be the only witness because Christ will appear, and this is what we'll look at more next week, Christ will appear to many, and before he ascends to heaven, he will appear to 500 people at once. What greater testimony to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. God thinks of everything, folks. Nothing escapes his thinking. He knew what the law was at that time. He knew how it would appear as far as witnesses go. Nothing escapes his thinking. But Jesus Christ speaks to Mary. And the second thing he asks her is critical for us today. Our first point today is the testimony of Mary there at the garden trying to find out where Jesus had been put. Our second point today is this, the question of Christ. Notice what he says. He says, whom seekest thou? Who are you looking for? Who do you seek? The word seek there in the original language is to inquire for, to search for, or catch this, folks, to desire. To desire. Jesus Christ asked Mary, whom seekest thou? It's the exact same word that's used in Matthew 6.33 where it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The exact same word. Jesus Christ asks her, Whom, whom do you seek? Same word. What a life-changing question, folks. Whom do you seek? Do we desire to seek after Christ in our life? 
If somebody comes to you today and says, whom do you seek? Who do you want to be around? Who do you want to be with in today's modern vernacular? Who is it that you have a desire to be with? What is the answer that we would give? Oh, I'd like to meet. Oh, I'd like to see this athlete. Oh, I'd like to see this movie star. Oh, I'd like to see this wealthy person. Oh, I'd like to see... But would our answer be Christ? Whom do we see? Whom do we want to be with? Jesus Christ, in speaking to Mary, I think spoke volumes to the future of mankind. Whom is it that we want to be with? Whom do we desire to have an audience with? And in this case... Hopefully, Jesus Christ. You know, I love, I love the Psalms, and we've, we've preached through several Psalms here, but when I think of this question, I can't help but go to Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, it says, As the heart, or the deer, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Think of that verse. I think about thirsting after God. I'm a person who likes, I drink a lot of fluid in the day. I drink a lot of water and I, I get these little black raspberry things from Walmart I drink so I don't drink soda like I'm not supposed to anymore. And, uh, but I drink a lot in the day. I mean, I will go through several bottles of water a day because I get thirsty. But during the summer when I'm out mowing and mowing several lawns in a row, I mean, I carry big jugs of water with me because you just get so parched and so thirsty. And there's nothing I desire more than to slip back to the car in the middle of mowing a lawn and take that big old jug and turn it upside down and just let that ice-cold water just flow into my mouth. I have a desire for it. I want it. I thirst after it. And so the psalmist here in this passage in Psalm 42 is trying to give us that picture dealing with a deer. He says, as the deer thirsts for the water that's in the brook, he has a desire to drink. He has a thirst that needs to be satisfied. And so he goes to the brook to satisfy that thirst. And I don't know about you, but I can't read that verse without picturing the scene. I picture this beautiful scene out in the forest somewhere with this babbling brook that's running out of the mountain with nice, cool, crisp water. And I picture this little deer, Bambi folks, okay, walking up to the brook, right, and, ba- and taking a drink of water. And it's satisfied. That's what the psalmist is trying to get across to us here when it comes to our Lord and Savior. A desire, a seeking after the Lord. And folks, we, we, you know, we each have to answer that question in our life. We each have to ask ourselves in our life, do I seek after God? You know, it's amazing to me. Every year at Christmas, all over the place, we see plaques and plates and I don't know, all kinds of ornaments, and, and, they, and they have one saying on them. It says, wise men still seek him. 
And it's always a picture, you know, that kind of shows the, the three, what we term the three wise men. We don't know how many wise men there really were, but because there were three gifts, we assume there were three. It shows the three wise men looking up at a star, right, following the star to Bethlehem. You know, that's, that's the picture that's always on those plaques. But it says, wise men still seek him. And listen, folks, it's a nice saying, but it carries immense truth. Because if we are wise in our Christian life, we are going to be seeking after the Savior. We are going to seek Him. And, and, and I think that's just another picture in Scripture that shows us and demonstrates to us the importance of seeking the Savior. I know this is not Christmas time, but folks, why, why, did those, why did those wealthy men spend as much energy and probably wealth as it cost them to find where the Savior was? Because they were wise. I don't know how many people have ever been up to Sight and Sound Theater in Pennsylvania and have ever gone up there to see their Christmas production. Saw it many years ago. And, and it's, it's staggering when, when the wise men arrive. I mean, at their place, live camels are coming down the aisle. I mean, it's amazing. But, and, and then you got these, these wise men, and they have, they have their, their train behind them that's stretching down the aisle, and it's all this pomp, and also because these were important men. And, and you don't think of it, you, you always hear, you know, we always talk about three wise men. Of course, we don't know how many. But you don't think of what that entourage probably looked like. It wasn't just three guys riding through the country on camels, folks. There was probably an entire entourage that accompanied those guys that we know nothing about because they were men of wealth. They were men of means. And so they probably had people that traveled everywhere with them hauling all their gear and their food and whatever. And, and, and the fact, you know, we see that picture, and then we see the picture here in Psalms about, about seeking after God. And, and if we get nothing out of today's message at all, if you leave here and can only remember one thought out of today's message, think about the words of the Savior when he says, Whom seekest thou? Who are you looking for, Mary? Who do you desire to be with, Mary? It's amazing. But folks, we ought to have the desire to be with our Savior. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, starting verse 23. I love this, I love this passage in Acts. It's where Paul uh, stands in the midst of, of Mars Hill and talks to the Athenians. And, uh, and he recognizes that they worship all these different things. You know, they worship all these different gods. And, uh, and, um, and, and he's standing there and he says, For as I passed by and beheld your devotion, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. So Paul says, you guys worship so many different things, you even have an altar to a God you can't even figure it out yet. You just have an altar for him, to the unknown God. That's what you worship. And he says, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. Now I love this next phrase. Him declare I unto you. Paul says, let me tell you about God. God that made the world. I love how he starts. He takes them all the way back to the beginning. He says, let me tell you about God. He says, God who made the world and all things therein 
seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Now let's, let's just stop there for a second. I'm going to read a couple more verses, but let's stop there for just a second. Notice what that verse says. He has said, hath made of one blood all nations of men. Now, folks, this is not the message today, but let me just say that one verse eliminates anything dealing with prejudice or racial issues. God made all of mankind of one blood to dwell on the earth. But notice it doesn't stop there. And it says, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. What is he talking about? He's saying that God has established the nations where they're going to be, the bounds of their habitation, and the time appointed. What does that mean? In other words, when the Roman Empire was in charge, God knew they were going to be in charge. When the Greeks were over all the world, they knew he knew the Greeks were going to be over all the world. When this nation and this nation, the Babylonians, and go on and on, you can go through the whole study of history through the Bible, all the nations that had boundaries and had, had portions of the world at that time, none of it surprised God, folks. So what does that tell us today? Listen, folks, God is in control. And, and, and certainly when we have an election and we're getting ready to elect a new president, we, we, we all have our opinions of who that should be. But the fact of the matter is, folks, God is in control. And God has established nations and their time. Have you ever thought about this, folks? We don't know the time frame of the United States of America. Now listen, I love our country. You guys know that. I love our country. I want our country to turn back and honor God like we once did. But folks, we honestly don't know how long our country will be here. Because it's God who has established and appointed the times and the habitation. That's what this passage says. But verse 27 is where I wanted to go with this. Well, I want to go two places, but 27 is one of them. That they should, what's the next word, folks? Seek. That they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. What are we being told here to do in Acts? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Pursue the Lord. And what does the scripture tell us? He's not far from us, folks. But we have to seek him. Wise men still seek him. Why do we do that? It told us earlier in this passage, just the other place I want to go. It says this. In verse 25, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Folks, why do we seek the Savior? Because he's my life. That's why. Because he's my breath. That's why. I seek the Savior because without him I don't have life. I may be living, folks, but I don't have life without the Savior. I may be breathing, folks, but I don't have breath without the Savior. 
He is my life. We are to be focused and consumed on Jesus Christ as our life. And that's what he's talking about here. And let's go back to our passage in John. Point three is seeking the Savior, a word from Christ. Now Jesus Christ has asked Mary, whom seekest thou? But boy, verse 16, the whole picture turns. Because it says in verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Mary. Speaks one word, her name. And with that one word, (laughs) she recognizes her Savior. I don't know how Jesus said her name that day, but whatever way he said it, however he said it to her, it immediately struck a chord, and she recognized who she was talking to. One word. He said, Mary. That's all he said. And notice what it says. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master. Jesus speaks a word, and Mary speaks a word. And in that one word, her name, Mary's despair changed to delight. Remember, how do we find Mary at the beginning of this passage? She's wailing. She's in agony over the death of of the Savior. And in one word, saying her name, Mary changes from despair to delight, and she immediately recognizes the Savior and says unto him, Rabbi, which is to say Master. She basically responded in one word as well. But what a beautiful picture of the relationship that we should have with Christ, folks. He calls us by name. That's sweet. And we recognize he's our Savior and our master. Doesn't get much more beautiful than that, folks. John chapter 10, just slip back a few pages. John chapter 10 and verse 14. Remember one of the I am statements of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. And what? I know my sheep. And am known of mine. My sheep know me. And the Father knoweth me even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And now we're post that. Jesus has taken his life back up. But did he not do exactly what he said he was going to do in John 10? He laid down his life for the sheep. And they know him when he calls their name. Beautiful picture of the aspect of our relationship to our Lord and Savior. But when we think about this, Jesus Christ being our master, being our Lord. It makes us think about our responsibility as believers. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20, says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Catch that, folks? 
If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. If Jesus Christ is my master, folks, is my life lived in such a way that I am useful to the Savior? So I have to ask myself, is Ken Big's life useful to the Savior or am I just taking up space, folks? And sadly, there are thousands upon thousands of people that claim the name of Jesus that are probably sitting in churches all across our country today that are just taking up space, folks. That's all they're doing. They're not meat for the master's use. They're not living their life in such a way that they're useful to the master. I have to ask myself that. Back over to John. We're just about done for today. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. Now, you've got to do some work through the Greek and understand how the language is written. Jesus is not saying, Don't touch me. She's already touching him. <laughs> He's saying, you need to let go of me. She has probably, for sake of a better term, just fallen with her arms around the Savior, and she is hanging on, and she is not letting go. Can we understand that mindset? Sure. Sure. If somebody you dearly loved had gone into the grave and by some miracle had come back to life, I'm sure it would be a pretty joyous occasion I'm sure there would be a lot of tears. There'd probably be a lot of hugging. And Mary, basically, I, I picture her. I, I picture, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say what the scripture doesn't say, folks. But I picture the second she says "Rabbi," I picture her just falling into Jesus' arms. That's how I see her, because she has been so torn up with grief about the death of her Savior, and now he's standing there talking to her. And so Jesus says to her, don't touch me. In other words, you've got to let go, Mary. And when I think of that, I think about just, just, just running to Christ, falling on Christ. I can't help but think of the song entitled, I Run to Christ. The lyrics go like this, I run to Christ when chased by fear and find a refuge sure. Believe in me, his voice I hear. His words and wounds secure. I run to Christ when torn by grief and find abundant peace. I too had tears, he gently speaks. Thus joy and sorrows meet. It's a beautiful song, folks. But I picture Mary, torn by grief, now falling and grabbing hold to the Savior and hanging on. And notice what he says. He says, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren. Jesus wanted her to go and spread the word to the disciples. Now, it's interesting, Spurgeon points out, this is the first time Jesus Christ ever referred to the disciples as his brethren. I don't know the significance of that, but it's interesting. 
He's never used that term referring to the disciples before. But he says to them, go, he says to Mary, go and tell my brethren. Now, John doesn't record something at this juncture of the story that Mark does record, and I think it's important. So slip over to Mark chapter 16 for just a second. In Mark chapter 16, and starting in verse 1, it says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome had brought sweet spices, so they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came in the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were frightened. And he saith unto them, Be not afraid, and ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter. See, Mark adds two words, and Peter. Now, folks, let's think about the last we've seen of Peter. He was cursing and denying the Savior. Remember that night? The night of Jesus' arrest? Peter, who said, Lord, I'm going to go to the death for you, couldn't even hold his own against a little girl that answered the door, but denied the Savior, and then denied the Savior, and then the third time, cursing, denying the Savior. And now Jesus says, go tell my disciples and Peter. The forgiveness of the Lord, folks. He wanted to make sure Peter got the word. That's a, that's a blessing. To realize that the one who most, most vocally denied our Savior, Peter was the loudest denier that night. Most of the other disciples just scattered that night, folks. But Peter was the vocal denier, saying, I do not know the man with cursing. And Jesus Christ says, Peter... You're forgiven. And we know that Peter would go on to give his life, according to church history, by crucifixion, same way Christ died. But Peter, Peter begged to be crucified upside down because he said he did not deserve to be put to death the same way as his Savior. That's sweet, folks. That's Peter. Why? Because God forgave him. God forgave his failings. They were big failings. I mean, he denied the Savior vocally, out loud, with cursing. And Jesus says, hey, I forgive you. I forgive you. Notice what he says as we end. He says, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Christ had risen to descend no more, folks. He was heading to the right hand of God the Father where he is seated to this day. And the scriptures tell us he's doing one thing. He's making intercession for you and for me. That's what he's doing. That's what our Savior is doing today, folks. He's standing, seated, I should say, next to the Father. And every time old Satan comes along and says, you know what, Ken Biggs did this today. And Jesus Christ says, covered in the blood. 
And the next time Satan comes up and says, you know, Ken Biggs did this today. Jesus Christ says, covered in the blood. And time after time after time, every time I fail as a human, every time you fail as a human, and Satan comes accusing the brethren, which is what the scripture tells us he does. Every single time Satan comes, Jesus Christ is sitting there making intercession for us, saying it's covered in the blood. 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 See, folks, that's what our Savior did for us. So we come to the conclusion of today's message, and I ask one simple question. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Do we focus our life on Jesus Christ? Ask it another way. If you could be granted your biggest desire to meet any person this day, who would you like to have walk through the back door to meet you? I hope it's Jesus Christ, but I've asked myself that same question too. Is there somebody I think would be more important to meet than him? I hope not. But if, if, if somebody came and said, I can, I can allow you to meet anybody in this entire world, who would it be that you'd want to meet? Who would you want to walk in the back door? Do we seek the Savior? Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. We come to the end of the message today. Very simple message from there at the side of the tomb, folks. Jesus Christ is risen, our Savior. But he asks Mary a question that I believe can echo down through the course of history. Whom do you seek? Or whom seekest thou? Folks, I hope we're seeking a Savior. I hope we are. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm just going to ask Kaifa just to play. Just for a moment, if you need to do business with the Lord, the altar's open this morning. We wait for just a minute.